0: Hello, if you're listening to this, the world has not yet ended. So that is a positive thing. This is a sign of life. Um, that's a doom-laden... You've probably turned off already. I can, I'll can. i have a look at the stats for this uh, so-called podcast afterwards and see just how many people turned off after the first sentence. And it's immediate reminder of the... Uh, the troubling proximity of Armageddon. I'll try not to dwell too much on that today. Um, welcome, it's episode eight. Uh, those of you who've struggled through the previous seven episodes will recall that it is my wont, uh, and in some ways even my trademark, uh, to go walking somewhere or other when I record this podcast. But today, I'm mixing it up, because I'm actually standing in my bedroom. I'm standing in my bedroom, looking out uh, of the window uh, across the garden. And I'm doing that for various reasons, partly because it's it's raining. And although in the course of the history of the iPhone, uh, that device has become far better at resisting... The damage that water can inflict on its inner circuitry. I'm not totally confident that if I walk in the rain for half an hour with my phone about four inches from my face, uh, it won't totally bollocks it up. So I'm inside, and, and what you may hear is the, the the creak of the wooden floorboards beneath my feet as I pace back and forth around the room. You'll probably hear a uh, an echoey quality to the uh, to the sound. Despite the soft furnishings, you must have heard that creaky floorboard. Um, But I hope that won't be too distracting. I'm looking out across the garden, um, and there is some cheer. Firstly, I gave the lawn a mow the other day. Seemed early to be doing it at the end of February. But despite the storms, the weather has been clement enough to set the grass growing so I gave it a mow and, and that always tidies the garden up so I'm, I'm pleased to be looking at that I'm looking at tulips uh, which I've I've crammed into every available pot poking their heads up I can see some daffodils here and there uh, nodding at me from the flower beds and best of all I can see the cherry tree at the end of the garden uh, retaining about 50% of its blossom it was at peak blossom last week and the blossoming of the cherry tree for me really is, uh, the harbinger. Is that the right word? It doesn't sound right. Is it a soft G? Harbinger? No, it's not. It's the herald, let's say, of, uh, of spring. And so that always cheers me up. Um, thank you for listening to this. Thank you to all the subscribers to History Etc. Uh, who keep this going, um, thank you very much for your contributions this week to which I'll get on to in a minute to the Wednesday thread which was about uh, people who've been overlooked in history I hope you enjoyed um, the posts this week on Sunday when I usually preview what I'm going to put on the the sub stack this week I did say that I was going to post this week about Um, Shakespeare's Henry V because there's a production in London of Henry V which I was going to go and watch this week Um, and I was going to record my thoughts on it because Kit Harington famous as Jon Snow from Game of Thrones is playing the title role I was looking forward to going and of course bellowing you know nothing Jon Snow in the middle of his St Crispin's Day speech ho ho bet no one tries i bet no one tries that but everyone everyone thinks they might do it but no one actually tries it I, i i would not really try that um so anyway so on monday when i was i was due to go to this performance um i was i was really really busy and i was rushing around and i had chores both professional and domestic to complete and i completed them to time and um, then I've been out in the garden doing some, you know, some weeding on my hands and knees, and I got that done, and I rushed inside and I changed out my gardening stuff and into my sort of I'm going uptown on my own to watch a play, Clobber, uh, and I got it all on, and then I, I thought, all right, where, where's my ticket? I've got to find my ticket. So I looked through my email inbox for the ticket, and I was like, is it seven or is it seven thirty? And I looked at the ticket, and it was seven thirty as it goes, um, only not on Monday. Uh, Actually On the next Monday I'd got the date wrong like an idiot It's a good job actually I didn't go all the way to the theatre I think I I, I wasn't too I wasn't too cross with myself I'd be more cross with myself If I'd got on the train And gone into London And and pitched up at the theatre uh, Presented myself For a seat in the audience Only to find the play hadn't yet opened That would have been more annoying I was actually glad That I, I caught myself in time if you've ever been an idiot, if you've ever done something super dumb, why don't you tell me? Why don't you send me an email to danjones at substack dot com, or you know, post it on my social media? Um, if you've ever done something super dumb, I bet you have. I bet you. I bet you're thinking now of the super dumb thing you've you've done. You don't have to tell me. It's not a conf- This is not a confessional podcast, but you can if you want. What are we going to talk about? Well, the question I asked you on Wednesday was prompted by a piece I read on, I think, the BBC news website early in the week. I, I'm sh- probably like you, I've done a lot of doom scrolling. That's a new verb, that's a new sort of composite verb. Um, that's that's come around in the last couple of years, and it, if you don't know what doom scrolling is, you're probably still doing it. it. Means going on the internet, and particularly social media, and particularly the the social medium of Twitter, and just endlessly looking for the most sort of disp- uh, depressing and distressing um, takes and stories and links and thoughts and arguments that you can find about the news issue of the day, and of course. Uh, the Russian invasion of Ukraine is, is it's it's not great stuff and uh, it's very easy to go doom scrolling that because anytime there's the threat of conflict between nuclear armed uh, alliances and powers um, people go and get a little bit uh, uptight about that <laughs> um, so I took a break from doom scrolling um, possible scenarios for the end of the world not the end of the world, the end of civilisation. Um, still not, not brilliant stuff. I took a break from doing that and went looking for some, uh, some breaking news in the medieval history field. And I saw that a blue plaque had recently, I think this was the end of February, a blue plaque had recently been um, put up on a municipal building in the small English city of St Albans. It's just north of London, Hertfordshire, if you're... Um, I think 43% of listeners to this podcast are in America, so I don't necessarily expect you immediately to know where St Albans is. But I have just told you. Think about London and then take about a 45-minute drive north. Not even that. 20 minutes. OK, you're physically located. You're mentally located. You're geographically located. In St Albans, a blue plaque was recently put up to... John Ball. Who's John Ball? Well, during the Peasants' Revolt of 1381, which is a historical event quite close to my heart because it was the subject of my first book, Summer of Blood, back in 2009, back in the day. Um, I'm quite interested in the Peasants' Revolt. Anyway, John, John Ball, in the summer of 1381, was one of the leaders of the Peasants' Revolt. And the Peasants' Revolt, if you want a quick recap, uh, in was a, a sort of... Initially it was a tax rebellion, but like like most popular rebellions, it drew in a whole cocktail of other grievances once it got going. So, And, and eventually became not only a tax revolt against the minority government of the young king, Richard II, but really a sort of popular... Uh, it's often described as England's first attempt at class revolution. It was a, a kind of cry of anguish from not the lowest, uh, sort of economically, socioeconomically lowest class in society, but, uh, but the lower orders, as we like to say in medieval history. You know, ordinary people protesting uh, a, a sort of generalised corruption in government, uh, which they saw as reaching back not only into the, f- the sort of the years of the poll taxes, which sparked the rebellion, but uh, maybe back a generation or so, it, it not dissimilar in that sense to Magna Carta in 1215, where the barons were protesting not only John's immediately failures of, of French policy, but his the. the, the the corruptions and inequities of the whole system of plantagenet government at that time. Well, this is a sort of a, the sort of the equivalent at the end of the 14th century. Only it's not barons protesting against the king; it's uh, it's ordinary people protesting against the governing class. Okay, that's that's the big picture of the peasants' revolt. The the centre of the peasants' revolt was a very violent. Four days of, uh, of looting and uh, murder of government officials in London. Um, but the revolt really spread all across England, from towns in the southwest of England all the way up to Yorkshire. John Ball was the spiritual leader of the Peasants' Revolt. And John Ball was a sort of renegade priest from Yorkshire, near York who was known to the authorities for radical preaching in churchyards. He'd go around and say outrageous things like, hey, aren't we all equal? Don't we all kind of deserve the same thing? Isn't the entire system of feudal, quote-unquote, lordship um, and ecclesiastical hierarchy basically corrupt and a stitch-up? And people would say, hmm, well, you might have a point there. Um But the ecclesiastical authorities were not so keen on that sort of talk. And so Ball had been uh, frequently in trouble with the law, particularly with the canon law, and he'd been locked up in bishops' prisons. In the Peasants' Revolt, uh, Ball was sprung from prison and provided the the intellectual and, and in a a very loose sense, spiritual... um, framework for the Peasants' Revolt and he's most famous for preaching on Blackheath just outside London uh, in the early days of the revolt with the couple of, when Adam Delves and Eve span," uh, who then was the gentleman and the M M&M of his time. Um, what did that mean? Well it meant uh, if you if you look into scripture and take a, a literalist biblical view of um, Bible, it says that in the beginning we were all created as men and women. And any social or church hierarchy that that makes greater distinctions than that between people um, is, is questionable and should be questioned. Anyway, that's John Ball. Uh, An intriguing character who was, after the end of the Peasants' Revolt and later in the summer, uh, was arrested and was brought to trial in St Albans. And uh, when he was arrested, there were all sorts of amazing cryptic letters found on his person, um, which were were being copied and sent around rebel groups around England. Uh, They're wonderful to read, and they, they invite his fellow true... Uh, true thinking Englishmen to rise up and chastise the wicked, uh, the wicked overlords. If you want to see, if you want to read more about it, um, go check out my book, Summer of Blood, which is published in the UK and is is published in the US as well. Anyway, when I read about John Ball getting a blue plaque, so Americans a blue plaque, I can't remember if you have them or not, but a blue plaque in England is a little thing that's pinned to the side or. or attached to the side of a building that says such-and-such such lived here or such-and-such such worked here or such-and-such, such, you know, great historical figure was associated with this building. Well, John Ball's got one in St Albans because that was where he was tried and that was where he was executed. So, I thought that was quite nice because John Ball, a figure... I was I, Dear to my heart doesn't necessarily imply that I too am a radical proto-communist uh, egalitarian preacher because I ain't. Um, but he is close to my heart in that I've written about him more than once and I find him a fascinating figure. And I think it's quite nice that he's got some props. So I asked you guys who you thought uh, deserved a bit more credit from uh, for their historical role. And I just want to read a couple, well, maybe more than a couple of the answers because I thought there were some great answers. If you want to read the full thread... Uh, It's archived on my Substack at History Etc. It's from Wednesday, which was... What was that? Wednesday, the 2nd of March. So go check out some of the answers. They're brilliant answers, as always. One of my favourite types of posts of the whole week is this thread because I find um, there's always new things I learn when I ask you guys a question. And uh, and the answers are super considered, and I'm I'm really loving the way that there's a a, a community and a camaraderie between uh, between the subscribers to this Substack because that's what that's what's meant to happen. Now, I guess one of the nominations for people uh, back to doom scrolling in a way here uh, for people who deserve a bit more credit. Um, several people nominated this person. Jesse uh, nominated this person. And who else nominated this person? Can't remember. Let's see. I'm just scrolling through trying to remember. Oh, bear with me. Oh, Jessica. No, was it Jessica? Uh, yes, it was Jessica. Jessica Tinsley. Jesse and Jessica Tinsley are both nominated Vasily uh, Arkhipov, a Soviet Navy officer, these are Jessica Tinsley's words, who is credited with preventing a global nuclear event during the, clo- the Cuban Missile Crisis. Huge impact, exclamation mark, or rather, not a huge impact, thank God. Um, and uh, Jesse can, can flesh that out a little bit more. So Jesse says, I've been thinking quite a bit about Vasily Arkhipov. He was a senior Russian submarine officer during the Cold War. Three senior officers in total were on his submarine, two of whom believed they were under attack by American forces and they wished to strike back. The action would have led to World War III and possible nuclear annihilation. Arkhipov was was able to basically veto the two senior officers uh, since force could only be used when all three consented. So his cooler head says Jesse, rationality and dignity prevailed. I hope we see more Arkhipovs. In the coming weeks and months, so um, I think I think that's quite interesting. I was one of the something was it this week or last week? I read quite recently an old piece by uh, Dominic Cummings, who um, is a, a famous slash notorious figure in um, in British public life at the moment and in the last few years, one of the. Uh, key political forces behind Brexit and, for a time, um, chief advisor to Prime Minister Boris Johnson, now uh, chief antagonist of uh, Boris Johnson. Well, shortly after Dominic Cummings, who is also on Stubstack, I believe, and does very well, um, shortly after Cummings left government, he was asked by The Spectator, the political magazine where his wife is deputy editor he was asked which event uh, he wished, which historical event he wished people knew more about. And he gave a similar answer. And he uh, nominated um, a nuclear false alarm in 1983 in which a guy called Stanislav Petrov, a lieutenant colonel in the Soviet Air Defence Force, was was on duty monitoring... um, Nuclear activity, you know, military nuclear activity. And the background to this was that things were pretty tense around 1983 in the Cold War. I think the Russians had recently shot down a South Korean plane. And so I think, yeah, things were pretty tense. And Petrov monitoring the Soviet nuclear defense warning system. Saw on his screen that the Americans had launched a nuclear warhead at Moscow. Forgive me if I get that wrong. And there were five more nukes on their way behind it. Now Petrov's job, his his duty, was to uh, send out of the chain of command and thereby order a retaliatory strike against NATO. American, um, you know, American targets and NATO targets, uh, but Petrov had the presence of mind to um, not perform his duty. So he, something in his gut, told him that this was a false alarm. This was a problem with the system, and that it wasn't actually an uh, an American slash NATO strike coming towards uh, the Soviet Union, and that he needed. To He needed to not act uh, in the name of saving humanity. And Petrov effectively disobeyed orders uh, based on the fact that he was extremely highly trained and intelligent and had great presence of mind and thought quickly in uh, the heat of the moment because the time constraints and the time pressures on making decisions about nuclear warfare are frighteningly small you know we're talking minutes uh, and so cool heads intelligent people in the right positions able to do their jobs uh it does help it definitely helps anyway coming to to petrov and i think that that's uh, that's a similar um that's a similar answer to Arkhipov. And I can understand why people are thinking in those terms at the moment. So, uh, so thank you to Jesse and Jessica for nominating Akhapov. Um, thank you, Don Cummings, although he didn't contribute to the thread, uh, for reminding me the other day about Sergei Petrov. Yes, indeed, let's hope that uh, there are more of those people about in the coming weeks and months. Amy Kaufman wheels us back a few centuries and nominates Jasper Tudor wishes people, more people knew about Jasper Tudor. Amy says, all those Tudors we love or love to hate would not exist without Henry VII's savvy, resourceful uncle who dedicated his life to his nephew and kept him safe. And hardly anyone knows who he is. He deserves to be better known as his story is full of excitement and drama and ultimately his sacrifices led to the Tudor dynasty. Uh, Amanda Kemp uh, said she wanted to name her son Jasper but was vetoed lol uh, and amy Ka- kaufman came back with perhaps my favorite comment on the entire thread uh, i wanted to name our corgi jasper 2 dog but i was <laughs> oh dear i just laughed so much my nose uh ran i wanted to name our corgi jasper 2 dog but i was also vetoed uh well the canine world's loss is uh the history etc of threads gain um thank you for sharing that uh, amy kaufman Jasper Tudor's a great shout, I think. Um, when so, back in 2014, I published a book called The Hollow Crown. In the US, it was just called The Wars of the Roses. Um, it was about the Wars of the Roses and the rise of the Tudors. And when I was building the sort of the the, the framework, the architecture for that book, I thought that Jasper Tudor and his brother Edmund Tudor. Um, were characters who deserved far more prominence in the st- in telling the story of the Wars of the Roses. Although I was going to give more prominence in telling the story of the Wars of the Roses, because, um, well, for all the reasons that Amy Kaufman has pointed out, I mean, the, the these two brothers, the half brothers of uh, King Henry the these two. Through, that's through the marriage of Catherine de Valois and Owen Tudor. Uh, these two guys, yeah, they they really uh, pr- help us make the, not just the genealogical, but the political link between the beginning of the 15th century, Henry V, Henry VI, and the, in the the early years of Henry VI, and the end of the century when you see the Tudor dynasty dynasty come to the throne because you can't begin to understand... The rise of the Tudors in 1485, and if you only look at the life of Henry VII, you know, son of Margaret Beaufort and Edmund Tudor, born in Pembroke Castle uh, when his mother was just 13. But for for most of his life, really a a fairly faceless exile. People always say, "What you know? Why did they go for Henry Tudor?" And you can only understand the answer to that question if you look at the longer history of the decades when edmund and jasper tudor were uh, alive and active jasper tudor obviously has a longer political career than edmund tudor anyway so when i was writing the hollow crown was the rose i did quite a lot of work on those two guys and and particularly with embedding them in the story with with trying to find out about their early lives um, in Essex, when they were at Barking Abbey growing up, and uh, and I think that bringing them to the fore in the story really helped me when I was putting that book together. Helped me to um, navigate a very, very complicated story because all the way through the story, we could keep coming back to to this one minor family in the Wars of the Roses who would eventually uh, appear triumphant at the end. So, yeah, Amy, I am with you on Jasper Tudor. I think that's I think that's good. Sticking with the. Um, the Plantagenet theme, Carly Gibson nominates Thomas II of Lancaster, eldest son of Edmund Crouchback, eventual leader of the opposition to his cousin Edward II's reign. Tried to govern after England's disastrous loss at the Battle of Bannockburn, but was unsuccessful, eventually executed by the Dispensers. Miracles reported at his tomb, he was considered by some to be a martyr and a saint. Yeah, I think, mate, do people not know about Lancaster? I've spent too much time around the Plantagenets, so Lancaster, for me, looms fairly large in my mind, but I think you're probably right. I think uh, I think he is a fairly unknown character. I think uh, far better known, actually, as someone who was nominated by Angela Bliss is John of Gaunt. When we think about Lancaster, it tends to be Gaunt uh, who comes to mind, and then of course the Lancastrians of the fifteenth century. Uh, so excuse me. <coughs> so yeah, going back to, to Thomas Earl of Lancaster, that's 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 uh, that's a decent shout. Um, where was I? There was somebody else just caught my eye. Uh, Guy Pai said, I'm going to go on a limb here and say Muhammad. Mohammed's overlooked in, uh, by history. That's a, uh, that's a big shout guy. Um, in the Western world, and especially in the Western world, sky guy that has done little but demonize Islam and its cultural influence the last couple of decades, the importance of Islam to world history is often forgotten or neglected. Uh and then uh, yeah go go have a read of guy's post cuz it's it's well reasoned and, uh, and 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 uh, a moderate and thoughtful post um i think i know what you're driving at and i think i whilst i i wouldn't say that the prophet muhammad is has been totally ignored um and overlooked uh in the same, i'm not going to put the prophet muhammad and jasper tudor on the same <laughs> rung of the ladder let's put it that way However, I, uh, again, sorry to harp on about my own work, but when I was writing Powers and Thrones, the fourth chapter of that book, which is entitled Arabs, is all about early Islamic history. And when I came to write that, you, Guy, you're absolutely right, I found, uh, I knew I was ignorant about early Islamic history. I knew I was. But I didn't really know how ignorant. I hadn't I hadn't plumbed the depths of my own stupidity. Well, not stupidity, but, uh, yeah, the... the, the my ignorance uh, and to to delve into that history of early Islam, and the controversial relationship between um, between faith and history as we understand it in the in the sort of western uh, tradition in the Western humanities. Uh, that, that it was super interesting, and it was probably the most challenging and one of the most enjoyable chapters I wrote of Powers and Thrones, um, because the task was twofold: one to understand early Islamic history in its own terms, and to try very sensitively and 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 carefully to view Muhammad not only as the as the, the prophet of a faith, but as a as a historical figure as well, knitted into a broader history of the Middle Ages um, so the challenge was to understand Islamic history in its own terms but then also to weave it into this this broader history of of the medieval Mediterranean world um, that was super interesting massive challenge as a writer but also, massive challenge for a writer but also very rewarding and I felt like gave an, a sort of extra depth of and an extra dimension to uh, Powers and Thrones, which was my most recent history book. So, yeah, I'm, I'm with you, Guy. I think that's a, I think that's a cracking answer. OK, I've got time for one more. What have I been talking about that's taken up all this time? I can't even remember. That's how... That's how much verbal diarrhoea I have. Um, <laughs> let's finish with Jessica Corsi. He says, since it's Women's History Month, could we have a kick-ass woman... Oh, kick-ass women of the middle ages edition oh i've misunderstood i have misread the comment uh just because he doesn't just want me um, to nominate a, a kick-ass woman of the middle ages but to do an entire edition of uh, of the first draft uh podcast well that's a good idea maybe we'll do that next week i have done a post about bad what they weren't kick-ass they were badass is there a difference what's the difference between being kick-ass and badass i think it's only slight but maybe it's important. I've done, a, I've done a post on badass woman, women of the Middle Ages. And if you want to read it, go check it out on the archive. I think it was in early February. Um, go have a look at it. Give you some food for thought. But yeah, maybe we should do it. Maybe we should do a full half an hour on kick-ass women of the Middle Ages for Women's History Month. Should we do that? 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 Let me know if you want me to do that. Let me know to return to where I began. If you've done something really stupid and you want to confess it, um, I've got to go. But thank you very much for your contributions to the thread. Thank you very much for listening to this podcast. Thank you very much uh, for subscribing if you're a subscriber. um, Thank you very much if you are about to subscribe because you're not a subscriber. Blessed are the subscribers. I think that's what we can conclude. Um, Yeah, this is fun. This is always fun. I'll see you next week. There will be a next week. Don't worry. And I'll, I won't see you. I'll speak to you. I'll speak to you next week. Goodbye.